Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. Uh, We're embarking on our study of anxiety and depression. Our goal is to go through about 5,000 sources, lectures, peer-reviewed papers, books, etc., and compile what uh, will be found to be every possible known treatment for anxiety and depression and make it available as a low-cost resource for people suffering. So if you have any interest in that, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today I have an excellent guest, Gad Saad. He's the author of The Parasitic Mind. He's a professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. He's a former holder of the Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption. Excellent credentials, and uh, I've seen him before on some podcasts, so I wanted to have him in. So, Gad, thank you for coming. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me about your your new book. What's the premise of it? So I basically argue that in the same way that animals can be parasitized by a bunch of parasites that go to their brains and alter their behavior to suit the parasites. So, for example, the classic example that uh, some of your listeners might have heard of is Toxoplasma gondii. It's a parasite that can actually infect human brains, but the the most famous example is when it infects the brain of mice, uh, the mouse loses its innate fear of cats and it becomes sexually attracted to the cat's urine. And this benefits the reproductive cycle of the parasite. Uh, Or you could have something, for example, like a parasite that uh, afflicts the brains of ungulate, let's say elk or deer or moose, And one of the physical manifestations when they are parasitized by this particular brainworm is that they start engaging in circling behavior. So they they kind of go around in a circle, 
quite hapless, you know, bobbing their head up and down. And even as the looming predators are coming for them, instead of instantiating a flight mechanism to, to, you know, to flee the danger, they just keep repeating the same behavior. And so I take this framework from neuroparasitology, right? The idea of applying study of parasites to brains. And I argue that human brains can suffer from another class of brain parasites. And I call these idea pathogens. So rather than being actual physical brain worms, they are ideological brain worms that cause the humans that are inflicted with this parasite to behave in irrational and maladaptive ways. And so if you want, eventually I can discuss some of those idea pathogens. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen any idea pathogens over the past 18 months. What inspired you to was it just again studying parasites that inspired you to write this book? And you know, what are what are some examples right. that you see out in society of this happening? Well, I guess it began. At, so I've been a professor now for uh, twenty seven plus years, uh, and my area of scientific research is the application of evolutionary biological principles and evolutionary psychology to study human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular. And so I I saw some of the science denialism that took place within the scientific community. So amongst my colleagues in the business school or in the social sciences, they abhorred the idea that one would use biology to explain human affairs. And so my first exposure to how people who are otherwise supposedly educated and supposedly the smartest people in the room, how they can engage in completely irrational behavior was uh, the manner by which they would respond to my scientific work. My, the, my natural science colleagues thought, yes, of course, humans are biological beings. Of course, human minds are shaped by evolution. But my social scientist colleagues oftentimes did not agree with it. So at first, it was really restricted to me seeing how irrational my colleagues were. But then I started noticing that there were many additional idea pathogens. So for example, postmodernism is arguably the greatest idea pathogen of all because it purports that there are no universal truths there are no objective truths we are shackled by subjectivity we are shackled by our personal biases and therefore to speak of a truth is silly well of course that's completely anti-scientific because you know scientists do wake up in the morning thinking that there are scientific truths to be discovered now science is provisional what was true 300 years ago may no longer be true today but we do operate under the premise that there are regularities in the world that we can study and uncover. So so first I, st- I saw some of this uh, silliness in the halls of academia, but then like any virus, like any, uh, you know, like how we saw with COVID, if we believe that it escaped from a lab, uh, these bad ideas begin in academia, but eventually they escape from the ivory tower and they make their way to every nook and cranny. They make their way to our HR departments and to our political system and to journalism and to Hollywood. And so really the book is about tracing uh, how these idea pathogens came about, where they originate from, and how we could vaccinate ourselves against this level of stupidity. Well, yeah, I've, I've seen ideas have been called misinformation. They've been called conspiracy theory. They've been kind of thrown into the lap back and forth of different people that want to you know, use an idea in a different way. But uh, it, it's weird in a way. I guess it seems like the there is no universal truth is kind of coming true, but not in, in the right way. In a way, because people are learning to use, I guess, propaganda and framing and labels and things like that to, I don't know, make any claim on anything. It just seems like uh, I don't know if I'm explaining it right, but it just seems like uh, 
we're getting really good at distorting information and distorting people's perception of it. So the well, idea of who's right and who's wrong, I don't know where it sits nowadays, but it's just well, crazy. The fact that we can distort people's perceptions, that certainly is true. But the, the fact that humans are capable of succumbing to these biases doesn't mean that there is not a reality that is external to any attempts to distort our perceptions, right? Uh, it is an absolute fact that uh, men are on average bigger than women within homo sapiens. That's a fact. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a woman that is bigger or taller than some men, but at the aggregate, men are taller than women. It is an absolute fact that if I go up to a hundred foot, hundred story building and I jump a hundred times, the same outcome will happen a hundred times. I will die right. because of the pull of gravity. So the idea that, you know, of course, there is disinformation. Of course, there's misinformation. Of course, there's falsehood. Of course, people try to distort reality in, in whichever propaganda way that they'd like. That doesn't mean that a truth doesn't exist. So when you are teaching generations of university students that it's all subjective, you know, the scientific method is only one way of knowing. There are many other ways of knowing. No, there aren't other ways of knowing. There's only one game in town. It's called the scientific method. That doesn't mean that uh, other people might not have, for example, if I go to some ecosystem where a tribal people have a lot of intimate knowledge about the ecosystem that they've lived in for 10,000 years, I can certainly ask them for their domain-specific knowledge, but that doesn't mean that their knowledge exists somehow outside of the scientific method. Any hypothesis that you want to test only exists within the framework of science. If it isn't within the framework of science, then it is within the realm of the supernatural or superstition. But what makes science so beautiful is that it liberates us from our personal identities. There is no Lebanese Jewish way of doing math. There is no indigenous way of doing math. There's just math. Well, what do you think about when, uh, you know, some people say, oh, math is racist or, I mean, these strange claims that uh, I see coming out in the media. What, what are your thoughts when you do that kind of thing? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. As often happens, I'm not sure how familiar you are with my work, but one of the tools that I use in my public engagement is I use satire and sarcasm to mock and deride a lot of the stupidity. So about four years ago, uh, my prophetic satire had struck again because I satirically announced that I had founded a new discipline, which I called social justice mathematics. Mm -hmm. I have a background in mathematics, so I can... You know, I was well placed to to do such a satirical clip. And I basically argued, you know, we shouldn't call numbers irrational numbers because that you know, <laughs> marginalizes the mentally, you know. And I just went through a whole list of stuff. It was it was hilarious. I've, I've had many mathematicians write to me saying they just sit there and watch my clip and laugh. Well, so, of course, math is racist is insane. I mean, what defines math? I mean, math is an, ax is an axiomatic system that you can learn 
independent of any context, right? So if there is anything that is free of personal biases and free of, you know, subjectivity, it's the axioms of mathematics, right? So that simply shows the, the level to which people have been parasitized by the idea of pathogens that I discussed in my book. It's insane. So how does this happen? How does a, an idea parasite enter into someone's head and take over? Well, so what I argue basically, uh, so to answer your question, here, here's what I try to do. So if you, and I'm going to analogize it first. If you, if you think of cancer, well, each cancer behaves very differently. Uh, you know, liver cancer is different from a melanoma, which is different from leukemia. But then we could say, okay, notwithstanding the fact that they may behave differently, there is something that is common to all cancers. And that is that they, they all have an unchecked cell division, right? Cell division doesn't stop. And that's ultimately what cancer is. So even though they may be very different from one another, we can find the commonality. So now if I were to apply that principle to the idea pathogen. So if I look at things like postmodernism and uh, the, the, the very, very vociferous, you know, militant feminism or social constructivism, the idea that you know, where everything is a social construction. These are each very different idea pathogens, yet what do they have in common? And, and this is going to get at the root of, you know, how, why is it that people get parasitized that you asked? Well, they all start with a noble cause that is alluring, but then in the pursuit of that noble cause, then you murder truth and you rape truth in the pursuit of that noble cause. So that's what's called consequentialism, right? It's okay to lie if it's that I'm trying to protect your feelings, right? So, so example, uh, equity feminism is a great idea. It basically says that men and women should be equal under the law. There should be no, you know, systematic reason or systemic reason why men or women should not be viewed as equal. If they do the same job, they should be paid the same hourly rate. Okay, well, we can all agree with that. Radical feminism or a more militant strain of feminism says, well, in the pursuit of creating equality between the sexes, let's now build a narrative that says that men and women are indistinguishable from each other. Men and women, uh, all differences between men and women must be due to social construction. Because if we preach such a nonsensical narrative, at least we can protect against this sexist status quo. So in the, in the service of trying to create equality between the sexes, they then push a narrative that is fundamentally flawed. Uh, and so each of these idea pathogens has that exact same reality. You start off with a noble cause that has a grain of truth to it, but then it metamorphosizes into nonsense because you're so keen on implementing that social justice goal that you're willing to rape truth. Well, I argue that you should be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. I could be fully supportive of social justice goals without ever seeding a millimeter of truth. Well, nowadays, though, it seems like not only are, uh, I mean, it seems like a forced paratization, you know, with certain topics and certain things, uh, you know, oh, if you question it, then you're this or you're that or you're labeled. So even if someone maybe doesn't want to get parasitized by an idea, what what would you call the outside social forces that pressure them yes. to at least talk about the idea or accept the idea or give a statement on it when normally they would say, this is just crap. I don't even want to, want to say anything about it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Sure. Well, that's called cowardice. And this is why I am petitioning to the world that we add 
cowardice as the eighth deadly sin. As you probably know, we have the seven deadly sins. I think just like we have amendments to the Constitution of the United States, we should have an amendment to the seven deadly sins because ultimately that's what it is, right? Because cowardice is ultimately what stops people from saying, well, wait a second, what do you, what do you mean boys can menstruate too? That doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to uh, jive with my understanding of the world, uh, right? So the problem though comes precisely of what you said. People are afraid. I'm afraid to lose friends on Facebook. I'm afraid that my employer might see a tweet that I put out. I'm af- There's an endless number of reasons why I should be afraid. Now, I'm not, I don't mean to imply that all of those reasons may not be valid or that, uh, you know, you should be an unnecessary martyr and martyr yourself, you know, in this, in, in the defense of truth. But the reality is that if you want to live in a society that is organized according to reason, logic, and science, and freedom of speech, then just like the guys who decided to land on the beaches of Normandy, knowing full well that they stood a very, very small chance of surviving five minutes after landing on the beaches because they were going to be mowed down by Nazi machine guns, right? They didn't get assuredness of safe passage. So while I appreciate the fact that you don't want to be fired from your boss and you don't want your friend to not like you because you love Donald Trump, maybe you need to grow a pair. Maybe you need to find your spine and then speak out. And as I keep repeating and reminding people, if people were to speak out in unison, then we will solve all these issues. We will get rid of the parasitic ideas very, very quickly. If we don't, then we will lose the battle for our societies. So have you, I would guess you've been attacked or have you, or do you oh, laugh of off the attacks or what happens? I, I, of course I get attacked and, and endlessly uh, in, in 2017 uh, it had gotten so bad in terms of the number of death threats that I was receiving that I had really? to, I, I used to have to go to, to the university to lecture accompanied by security. Uh, the wow. university insisted that I go uh like they came with me and a representative of the university came with me we went to the montreal police not campus police the actual montreal police to file a report where i brought you know the montage and you know the the documents of all the death threats so we all have a cross to bear uh believe me it's not easy being an academic and being as outspoken and as public as i am i have lost countless professional opportunities because of uh, being irascible, not willing to ever cede an inch of my desire to speak what is considered, what I consider to be true. So we mm-hmm. all have a cross to bear. Now, of course, different people are going to modulate their risks in different ways, right? Uh, so I'm not asking everybody to, you know, intervene in terms of their public engagement in the same way. But what you certainly can't do is say, I'm going to remain quiet sucking my thumb in a fetal position while crying on the, on the side of the room. And hopefully, you know, Gatsad and a few others will take all the hits for me. That's exactly how we end up, mm. losing, right? Because, you know, four, five, 10, 20 people are willing to get out there and put everything on the line while everybody sends you private emails telling you how much they adore you and how much of a hero you are. But then they write as a last line, Oh, and please, Dr. Saad, if, if you read my email on your show, please don't mention my name. So if I can't get you to even be courageous enough to stand with me, I'm not even asking you to speak, but if you can't publicly speak, I mean, stand with me in showing your public support, then maybe don't whine and complain when your, your kids are being parasitized with nonsense in their grade five, you know, biology class. Right, right.
when you're attacked by people and they, they threaten you with death, what, for, for having different opinions? Is that, it's, it's really that bad. It could be different things. It could be I criticize Islam and, you know, you're not supposed to criticize Islam. It could be in the case of the, in 2017, actually, the death threats that were coming were not coming from, uh, you know, Islamic uh, extremists. It was actually coming from kind of neo-Nazi types who were unhappy with me because they had completely erroneously thought that I was behind a, a woman who was supposed to so I'll, let me back up. I was supposed to speak at an event with Jordan Peterson uh, in the summer of 2017 at a university in, in Toronto called Ryerson University. And the yeah. title of the talk was going to be the stifling of free speech on university campuses. And of course, yeah, it was stifled. Well, it was stifled. Exactly. The, the, the irony is lost on those fascists. And so the organizer of that event, it was, uh, was an organizer who was you know, shelling out her own money for the event. Uh, she wasn't associated with the university. She decided, okay, well, I'm just going to reorganize this event in an outside venue where I know mm-hmm. I won't be canceled. And she asked the people who were going to be speaking at the event, do you think, what do you think about this other person? There was this journalist who had, you know, hung out with some kind of Apparently, I don't even know who they were, but some like suspicious kind of neo-Nazi, white supremacist type of guys. And uh, so she asked us, well, she seems to be kind of divisive and maybe corrosive. Do you think I should invite her still? And and we just gave her our honest opinion. We just said, well, here are the pros of doing it. Here are the cons. Uh, it's probably going to increase your security costs. It's going, you know, so we just gave her mm-hmm. our, our thoughts, you know, right? And ultimately, it was up to her to decide whether she was going to, I mean, she was footing the bill. We were just speakers. Right. Well, this got suddenly morphed into, oh, the diabolical Jew, meaning me, you know, behind the scenes is pulling the strings. You know, the hook-nosed Jew is yeah. you know, is doing all this stuff. And so they started coming after me. We're going to boil you this way. We're going to skin you that way and so on and so forth. So, you know, when you speak your mind, there are all sorts of people who are going to be angry. The reality, though, is, as I've always said, I live to, I prefer to live, uh, you know, an hour as with dignity than a million years as a coward. And so mm. I just, I just marshal on. Of course, sometimes it upsets you. Of course, sometimes it, uh, it worries you, especially if I'm out with my family. But the reality, to be honest with you, 99.9% of the innumerable people who've come up to me on the street, they've always been incredibly nice, knock on wood. So, I think maybe a lot of times people are a lot more courageous in, uh, you know, telling you how they're going to boil you alive. Well, it sounds like at least in the past, your university was supportive of you. But what do you do if, I mean, it's so crazy. And what you say, it seems like all of society is against you. Your university doesn't support you. Your job yeah. fires you. I mean, it just goes everywhere. What, what do you do? Well, to be honest with you, I mean, if you were talking specifically about me, uh, my university doesn't support me rather my university tries to ignore me in a sense we've reached that's better than throwing you out i guess that's better than throwing you out i mean it's it's rather hard to throw me out because i'm tenured and you know i have a big Mm. platform as well but never say never i guess but uh uh so so they certainly don't send out the congratulatory emails and articles about all of my accomplishments as one would think they should given all of the accolades that I accumulate, right? So, you know, I have a book, The Parasitic Mind, that we're talking about that is a 
I mean, forgive the immodesty, that is an astronomically huge international bestseller. You wouldn't know it much if you went to my university's communication platforms. And so mm-hmm. that's really regrettable because you would think that any reasonable and logical academic institution would be fully on board with every single word that I say. There is nothing controversial in what I say. I am a dogged supporter of the scientific method. I reject anything but using meritocracy to award uh, anything in academia. I reject that your uh, traits, whether you're transgender or black or Jew or Muslim or disabled, should determine whether you get anything. Uh, That's what's beautiful about science. It liberates us from our personal identities. I support an unequivocal and absolutist perspective on freedom of speech. Nothing is off the table. There is no hate speech. There is no, but if it hurts somebody's feelings, the truth doesn't care about your feelings. And so any truly classically liberal person sees nothing controversial in what I say. But given the topsy-turvy world that we live in, apparently I'm a dangerous, corrosive guy. Do you have, I mean, does your book contain any advice for people that are, you know, have somewhat of a platform on how to minimize the attacks or how to navigate the attacks that they'll suffer? In several chapters, I try to offer some vaccinations against the parasitic infestation, against the the idea pathogens. I'll just mention a a quick few that people might remember. So probably the one that resonates the most with people because it gives them a, a sense of purpose is I tell them to activate your inner honey badger. The reason why I use that imagery is, as I'm assuming you you understood from your laughter. They're ferocious, yeah. Exactly, right? So the honey badger is the, is this animal that's the size of a small dog, and yet it is so astronomically ferocious and fierce that you can have, and you can go on Google and YouTube and watch those clips, you can have six adult lions approaching it, and they run away intimidated. Well, how could that be? Well, it is just insanely ferocious, right? Everything that it does, it looks like it's walking as though it's, the size of 10 lines put together. And so what I argue is you have to be a honey badger when it comes to defending fundamental principles that are well-articulated, well-reasoned, that you truly believe in. So if you do that, I mean, by the way, that's how I live my life. So if you go on social media, you see I I don't suffer fools gladly. Now, sometimes people think, oh, I'm being mean or rude. I'm actually exactly the opposite. I'm a very nice, very affable, very you know happy-go-lucky guy. But I'm also somebody who gets personally offended if I see BS being flung around cloaked in the robe of, you know, fascist progressivism. And therefore, I get angry, I get indignant, and then I come after you. You insult me. You know, you better not miss because I'm coming after you. I'm coming after your ancestors. I'm coming after the people that are not yet born in your family. Because, and again, when I say I'm coming after, I don't mean physically. I mean in a, in a combat of debating yeah, ideas. Yeah, yeah. Words, right? And so I think that's what people have to be. They have to be indignant. They have to be upset that, wait a minute, you can't teach this garbage to my children. You have no right to their minds. And that's well, what well, they people- are. But, you know, I think people have seen some of these parent school board meetings. Now they're, now they're trying to classify them as domestic terrorists. Exactly. exactly. It's, it's bad. It's bad. It is bad. It is bad. But listen, uh, we can turn it around. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm truly heartened by seeing the number of parents that are now you know, activating their inner honey badgers. I mean, three, four, five, six months ago, there were exponentially, you know, many, many 
you know, folds fewer people speaking. You know, right. someone like Christopher Rufo, who took on the CRT uh, stuff, right, the critical race theory stuff, you know, he th- it fell on his lap, right? I mean, he didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be the, the anti-CRT crusader, but it fell on his lap. Someone sent him some stuff privately. He decided to get into the battle and look at him now, right? So that's what I mean by being a honey badger. Christopher Rufo is a honey badger. He, he didn't set out to to fight this fight. But when he saw it there, he said, all right, I'm in, count me in. And if everybody does that within their spheres of influence, I truly think we can redress the ship and win the battle of ideas. What insights do you have into why large corporations are just are going woke? I mean, saying crazy things like, I don't know if it was Amex or Visa or MasterCard was saying like capitalism is racist, but yet they have hundreds of millions or billions. Right. Credit card fees that they've happily collected off of capitalism, capitalism. Like what, what's with the mental state of, of these companies saying these crazy things? Well, they overestimate the power of the blue haired people. And so they think that, you know, the blue haired woke people are more dangerous than ISIS. And so we better placate them. Otherwise, you know, they're going to come after us with some really mean Twitter mob. But I think a more scientifically minded explanation goes as follows. And I, and I, by the way, go into all this in, in the parasitic mind. So I make the distinction between virtue signaling, which now many people have heard of, and costly signaling. Let me explain very briefly what costly signaling is because it comes from my field of scientific research. Costly signaling in evolutionary biology is the idea that for a signal to truly be honest, it has to be costly to the one who emits that signal. So for example, the peacock's tail is very burdensome. Uh, it's very hard to fly away from a predator when you have such a big tail. It's very conspicuous. The predator can easily see you with all of those iridescent, beautiful colors. So why would such a tail evolve? Because it doesn't make sense. It reduces the survivability of the peacock. What it evolves through sexual selection, because it serves as an honest signal of the phenotypic quality of the peacock. You follow? So it's basically an advertisement saying to the ladies, the peahens, hey, hey, ladies, if I am carrying such a costly, burdensome, extravagant tails and I'm still around, don't you think you should be picking me? I am yeah. the real deal, unlike those other pretenders. So a real signal of courage is one where you speak out against some Islamic regime while you live in that country. That's a costly signal. That's yeah. having skin in the game. What what these companies do is they're engaging in virtue signaling because they think that if they put hashtag Je suis Charlie or hashtag bring our girls home or hashtag some bullshit inane thing, then at least the blue haired people will be placated. And then we could go about, you know, having sweatshops in whichever third world, third world country we're operating. Right. So from one side of our mouth, we talk about how socially just we are. And on the other side, we are the ones who engage in child labor. And so, uh, regrettably, and this is, I'm going to use an expression from Arabic. I'm going to translate it into English. There's an expression in Arabic that says getting drunk by simply smelling the cork of the wine bottle, meaning that you are so weak minded that only smelling the cork of the wine bottle is enough to get you drunk. You don't even need to drink the wine to get drunk. That's how weak and pathetic you are. Well, that's what happened. That's what those woke companies are doing. They think that consumers are so dumb that they will be drunk simply by smelling the cork of their virtue signals. Do you follow? And so, therefore, oh, look, Nike is truly virtuous. 
they have hashtag BLM, Black Lives Matter. They must be woke. Therefore, I want to associate with them. So they are uh, appealing to the lowest common denominators of imbeciles, where in reality, they are complete frauds. Interesting. So, I mean, we're seeing a, a resurgence of people fighting back. In terms of uh, what's going on with society, do you think that, uh, I know most people just want to be left alone, and only when they're really pushed into a corner, then they push back? And Is that what we're seeing? Or what do you think the dynamics happening right now? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I've always told people, I've been warning people for way longer than the words woke have existed, because as I said, I've been in academia for almost three decades uh, as a professor, let alone as a graduate student before and as a student and so on. So I always tell people, people are going to wake up. The problem is that when they wake up and seek to autocorrect the problem, do you want the problem to be corrected violently? or peacefully, right? So every day that people are apathetic and they wait and they refuse to intervene in the battle of ideas, that simply augments the chances that the, when the problem is solved in the future, it will be solved in a lot more messy way than it could be solved today if only you had spoken out. So I don't doubt that people will wake up. So we are seeing it, as we just mentioned earlier. Parents are waking up, right? Six months ago, you couldn't find, you know, two classroom, uh, whatever you call them, school administration meetings where parents were going wild. Now you're seeing it everywhere. So people do eventually wake up. But the question is, wouldn't it be better for them to wake up today where we could still solve it peacefully rather than, you know, in 10 years when it will be a repeat of Lebanon, the country from which I escaped during the Lebanese civil war. And people think that I'm, I'm engaging in uh, hyperbole when I do that. The reality is that if you keep espousing the type of identity politics, the type of racial division, the type of us versus them garbage that is now becoming, you know, the central mantra of all progressives, right? You will end up with Lebanon. That, you know, Lebanon is the perfect end result of what happens to a society that is perfectly organized along identity political lines. You don't want to repeat that. Take it from someone who escaped from such a society. We had it really well in the West. Hopefully, people will wake up and act accordingly. Have you been caught up in uh, any idea viruses or uh, idea parasites yourself and recognized it and done something about it? In terms of the types of uh, issues that we're talking about, because, you know, I think that my thinking, I'm inoculated against all of these idea pathogens. But I'll tell you how I have been parasitized in my personal life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the, in one of the chapters in uh, chapter six of the parasitic mind, I talk about ostrich parasitic syndrome. The idea being, of course, that it's a metaphor. The ostrich doesn't actually do this, but the idea is that when the ostrich puts its head, buries its head in the sand, it's trying to, it's trying to avoid reality, right? Right. And I talk about how there's a whole bunch of manifestations of disordered thinking that are really manifestations of what I call collectively the malady of ostrich parasitic syndrome. Well, the guy who coined the term ostrich parasitic syndrome, yours truly, actually has himself succumbed to ostrich parasitic syndrome. How? When it comes to, for example, not having checked my weight on a scale for years at a time, right? So what am I engaging in? I'm burying my head in the sand. Hopefully I can avoid getting on the scale so that I don't receive any feedback loops from reality that says that I'm putting on weight. 
But guess what? I wake up four years later when I finally have the courage to weigh myself on the scale and I go, oops, look, I just put on 32 pounds, right? So, so even the one who is, you know, diagnosing a collective malady of ostrich parasitic syndrome is not immune from himself succumbing to ostrich parasitic syndrome. Well, I mean, that's good. At least you could admit it. You know, are there any areas of discourse that uh, you think are just hopeless right now, or lost, or ones that you know in particular desperately need people to intervene with sanity? I mean, th- there are many because I mean that's you know at first when I thought about uh, you know I was writing my book, the, one of the original titles or the, the the first iteration of the title was "Death of the West by a Thousand Cuts," which I now briefly mention in, in chapter one of the book. And what I mean by death of the West by a thousand cuts is that, you know, a single idea pathogen might not bring our demise. Two may not. But when you put a whole bunch together bit by bit, then you bleed to death. So so to answer your question, I don't think there is a single I mean, by far the, the you know, the granddaddy of all idea pathogens, as I said, postmodernism, because it rejects the epistemology of truth. It says that there is no such thing as an objective truth. But there, but in terms of you know, practical downstream consequences of that, the eradication, the slow eradication of freedom of speech is something that needs to stop, right? There is nothing, there is no, I believe in freedom of speech, but once you say, but you don't believe in freedom of speech, other than the usual provisos. I mean, you know, you, you can't engage in libel and uh, defamation. You can't engage in direct incitement and violence. But other than that, Nothing is off limits. I am a Jewish person who has gone through my own very tragic personal history in Lebanon as a Jew escaping persecution in Lebanon. And yet I support the right of Holocaust deniers spewing their nonsense. There is nothing more offensive to truth than to reject a profoundly documented historical reality that is as grotesque as the Holocaust. But if I'm going to be a true free speech absolutist, I have to make affordances for the fact that there are nasty people who, spe- who spread falsehoods that are very offensive, but that's the price you pay for freedom of speech to live in a free society. So I think by far, the most important thing is to re- relearn our reflex of defending freedom of speech, because without that, nothing else matters. Well, what happens if, uh, I don't know, you're advancing a simple idea and people are labeling it all these crazy things. Oh, that's hate speech. Oh, that's uh, microaggression. Oh, that's this, that, and the other. How do you effectively fight back against that? Especially if you see people piling on, let's say, online. What do you do? I mean, what do you do? Uh, you brush it off your uh, shoulders, right? I mean, I'm not suggesting that it's always easy to be attacked, but, you know, walk in my shoes for a day and then come back and ask me that question, right? I mean, it's, that's, that's the price you pay. It's like saying, I want to go to war, actual physical war, but I just want to be guaranteed that those other combatants will be nice to me, right? I mean, I, I, I want to go to war, but what They're I would to like... to do that, by the way. Yeah, or, with the sorry? rules of combat. That's yeah, exactly. actually happening with the rules of combat. Okay. Exactly, right? So... So they, you know, this is, that's life, right? Uh, there, you know, there is one tribe that wants this. There's another tribe that wants this and let's get into the ring and let's hash it out. So luckily for us, we're still at the stage where we can hash things out, not with swords, but with our ideas. And so, you know, if someone is going to attack you online, well, boo hoo hoo, 
you know, grow a pair, find your spine and deal with it, right? I mean, that's that's life, right? So why should I be the one who is fighting on the behalf of your children, right? Why is it that you write to me to say, thank you, Dr. Saad, uh, you don't know how much I look up to you. Oh, but please, please don't mention my name, right? What kind of cowardice is that, that you expect me to fight for your children's rights, but you never assume any of the risks. So, so there is no other answer other than grow a pair and join the fight. Now, again, as I said, not everybody has the same platform. Not everybody has the same level of knowledge. Not everybody has the same ability to you know, engage in public debates, but you can do your small part. It could be you're just talking privately to a friend at a pub because they say something inane. It could be you question your professor politely when they say something insane. But do your part. Don't diffuse the responsibility onto others. Yeah, no, that's an excellent message. Any encouragement of people to not do this alone, band together in groups, but I guess then you can run, run the trouble of, uh, you know, it becoming an echo chamber. Do you, do you suggest that people, again, they just, they do this alone or do they work together to accomplish anything, uh, anything that advances the cause? I mean, uh, you know, for example, there are, now, you know, academic uh, groupings where professors who are like-minded when it comes to, you know, having intellectual diversity, like, for example, the Heterodox Academy was founded by Jonathan Haidt and, and others. Uh, so, so sure, you can, you can do this in, you know, in an organized manner in, in a group setting, but you could also, do, I mean, you have personal agency. You, you're capable of doing what you need to do on your own. You, you, you have control over the words that you say in a classroom or in a, in a cooler at the hallway during the lunch break at your company. Just don't constantly be cowed into silence. Speak your mind. Many of us who come from societies where these uh, freedoms were not enshrined uh, are really the ones that you should be listening to because we are the ones that recognize how anomalous the West is, how unique of an experiment it is to be able to live freely, speak your mind. And we are losing this at a very, very rapid rate. And I wish people would wake up and then hopefully we can return to the good old days where people weren't afraid of a blue-haired person on Twitter. I guess last thing, uh, what's, what's your thoughts on you know the big social media companies? On the one hand, they've given many of us who who operate in the battle of ideas, great opportunities, right? I could have never dreamt that I would have the kind of megaphone that I do. And so for that, I am thankful for the social media companies. But on the other hand, I also know that they are behaving like publishers whilst they are seeking the, you know, the protection of the, the, the legal frameworks that allow them to do the things that they do. So my feeling is notwithstanding the fact that I am a staunch libertarian, I don't like the idea of the government coming in everywhere. I almost see no other solution but to break up a lot of these uh, companies because in, in, at no time throughout history has any company had as much power over people as what the few companies that we all know have over us. It's simply incredible. They could press a button and you could cease to exist in terms of your digital footprint that's not a good thing. There needs to be mechanisms that allow the free freedom of speech is not something that should only be discussed in the context of the government restricting your freedom of speech. The culture also is one that either supports the idea of freedom of speech or not. So to all the idiots who will write to me and say, but professor, 
Twitter is a private company. It's not the government. So why do you worry when they shut? What kind of moronic statement is that, right? If you create a zeitgeist where everybody is afraid to speak so that they engage in self-censorship, even though it's not the government that is literally telling you to stop talking, effectively, the outcome is you stop talking. So the fact that you don't blame all freedom of speech, uh, you know, attacks on the government doesn't mean that we shouldn't go after other entities that are attacking our freedom of speech. Anyone that comes in the, in the, serves as an obstacle to freedom of speech is an enemy of freedom and they should be dealt with accordingly. Okay. Well, so again, um, I guess your book is available on Amazon and everywhere. Is it, uh, what, what other resources do you have to help people borrow a pair or learn how to grow a pair, as you say? <laughs> Thank where, you. Where can they go? Uh, well, of course, please consider buying my book. It, the paperback just came out this past Tuesday, The Parasitic Mind. You can buy it on Amazon. You could buy it at my publisher, Regnery. There are all sorts of portals that have it. So The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. You could follow me on uh, Twitter at Gad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. I also have an Instagram account. I have a Facebook public page, but uh, probably the place where they might find a lot of the content that we're talking about is I have a show called The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D. It's both on YouTube and also on my podcast where, you know, I, I post lectures, I post conversations that I hold with all sorts of interesting people. So people should subscribe to my podcast and to my YouTube channel, and uh, hopefully they can be inspired with some of the content. Excellent. Well, Gad, thank you for coming, and uh, it's very refreshing to hear someone speak plainly. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.